Let's give it up for Naya and Alicia, please. Amen. That's good. That's good. Y'all know it didn't have to be this way, right? We could be in a gutter right now. We could be outside. We could be outside of the family of God. It did not have to be this way. It's only because of the grace of God that we are who we are. And I hope we never forget that. I want you to give it up for, for, for my buds, uh, Pastor Sam Sutter from this morning, please. Absolutely killed it this morning. Letting us know about who we are in Christ and, and, what, and what that means. So throughout this week, uh, Sam encouraged you a lot this morning to get into the Word, to get into this book of Ephesians, to hopefully that study guide that we wrote will, will help you. Um, but but you, you need to be in the book. Like I told you yesterday, like I tell my church, like I'm sure every pastor tells his church, if you're not in the Word of God, you can't hear from him. I'm telling you, some of us are waiting for some like sign and wonder in order to understand what the will of God is. And God's like, man, just eat. The book's right here. The food's right here. Take the bread, the daily bread from the word of God and get into it. So please do that this week along with us. And hopefully you, you've been seeing some things um, that the word of God has been trying to teach you. For, you know, um, I was thinking about all of the, do, do you guys know the phrase mic drop? Y'all know what that is, right? I'm not going to drop this mic because they're going to make me pay for it. But you know, you know what it means to drop a mic, right? When somebody drops a mic, that means that it's over. What they said is just silence in the room, right? Ephesians is just full of mic drops from God. The fact that you had nothing to do with your salvation, that it's only by the mercy and grace of God that he made your spirit alive and called you to salvation, and that when he calls you to salvation, that this grace is irresistible, that, that you become a child of God, that he's known you before the world even came to existence. He knows the very number of hairs on your head. He has a plan for your life, and he loves you. That's a mic drop. And then the beginning of chapter 2, he tells us, and Sam talked about it this morning, about how we were dead, that there was nothing between us and God. No one was seeking after God. Nobody, no, not one. We all have gone our own way, and we were dead, and God made us alive. Not because we were anything special, but because of his great love. Love was the motivating factor. A perfect, divine love. A selfless love. But we had this past, right? And some of us relive our past all the time. And even after salvation, we continue to allow the things that have happened into our life, either by character defects or by just the circumstances and situations that we were in, we allow that these things that have happened in our life to control us. And the trauma that we experience is real. The feelings that we have are validated by, by the emotions that we have. These aren't fake things that are happening. But when we continue to allow these things to be the center of our life instead of the identity that we have in Jesus, we will never, ever reach victory. 
And so as we think about the things that we were before, and as we look at what God has made us now, and who we are in him, the fact that we went from what? Literally death to life. That we're saved by grace. That we have the unmeasurable riches of his grace. And that it was a gift of God. And that we are his creation. We are his workmanship. What does that mean for us as a people of God now? So tonight we want to talk about what unity is all about and what fellowship is all about and what reconciliation is about. So before we get into Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11, I want you to turn there so you're ready for it. I want to share with you just a few things that I've experienced in my life over the past year or so. And hopefully it'll help you just kind of think about where we need to go about what it means to have unity first with Christ and then with other people. So y'all remember this thing called COVID, right? It's like March 2020 and I and I uh, I remember we were having a meeting at the church that I was at and we were getting ready for this 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 year coming up and making all these plans and then all of a sudden everything just shut down. And I remember when everything started to shut down, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of trepidation. We didn't know what we were going to do. Here at, at Keswick, we were getting in, in, in Zoom meetings as a board, figuring out how all this is going to transpire. You heard on the news that if you had any kind of illness, you were going to die. You know, and then all of a sudden it changed. You were going to die a lot or not die at all. And then masks, don't get masks because doctors need masks. And then they say, hey, go get a mask. You definitely need a mask. Take that T-shirt and make it a mask and all, all that stuff, right? It just got really just like insane and everything changed. And I, and I remember I went through this. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm just not scared to tell you because I, I, I've been through counseling. And I have, and, and, I, and I do it now on, on a, on a, on a, uh, a preventative and a prophylactic way to make sure that I'm, that I'm always maintaining a proper relationship with God. I got really depressed. I got scared. I, I, was, I was by myself. I felt alone. At, at the church that I was at, we decided to shut down for a bit. So we started doing things on camera. And then, you know, we tried doing it live and that didn't work. Then somebody had a problem. So then we started recording it. And then I was speaking to a camera for 14 weeks. And it was just insane. And I just felt alone. And then, of course, if you start listening to the news, because I'm diabetic, I'm going to die. You know, and so all these things are, are in my, and I'm, and I'm just having, and I'm being eaten up inside, and I'm, not, and I'm not taking care of it. We get through COVID, we get through that year, 2021 hits, and we're all like, this is going to be a new year, baby. It's going to get better, and it did not get better at all. It got worse. It got worse to the point in my life I was so broken and so beaten down and so just messed up. I started lashing out. I started, I started speaking wrongly about people in public and in private and, and you know, thinking my staff would, would be the safe place to go to instead of going to Christ and going to a counselor. And I wound up having to step down as a pastor because of that. And I remember y'all were with me through that process. I've been here several times speaking since then, and it was a rough time. And I remember one of the biggest things that, 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 that I didn't strive for is unity in our, in our church because they were all against me, right? That's what it is. Everybody's against me, so the only unity that needs to happen is everybody needs to be on my side, right? But what I really forgot is that my first priority is to maintain my unity with my Savior, not my ministry. 
That's where everything fell apart. I wasn't maintaining my relationship with God. I was going through the motions because that's what I do for my job. And when we think about what it means to have unity in Christ, here's how Ephesians has spelled itself out. Here's how the Apostle Paul has written it so far, that we have all of these immeasurable riches in Christ Jesus. We have all of these great things going for us. But we forget where we came from. What we have in Jesus shouldn't give us a superiority complex. Because it's not about you. It's not about us. It has never been about us. But we sure like to make it about us. A lot of us love to have that martyr complex. A lot of us love to have that, 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 that complex where everybody's against you and everybody's wronged you. And we start picking at everything that has happened in our life. And this person did this and this person did that. And we don't deal with it the right way. So we never can get to the root of the matter. And the root of the matter is that we are flawed sinners with character defects. And we need a Savior who not only saves us but maintains our salvation. So our unity has to be in him. But the problem is, we don't know how to do that, right? It sounds great. I mean, it's, it's like bumper sticker. It's tweetable, right? Maintain your unity, hashtag Keswick 2022, right? <laughs> it's hard to maintain unity. But one of the biggest issues is that if we're ever going to maintain unity with one another... We have to maintain unity in Christ. So we're going to go through, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, and we're going to get some background as to what he's talking about in context, and then I want to share with you what it means to have this unity, what it means to have this fellowship, what it means to have reconciliation. So let's all stand in respect for the reading of God's word because it is that awesome. And we're going to read verses 11 down to verse 22. So then, okay, so now remember everything that we've read before, right? So then, remember that at one time, you were Gentiles in the what? Flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you were, who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our what? Peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in, again, that word, peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and the peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks for standing. You're welcome. So here's what's going on at the church at Ephesus. Here's what was going on at a lot of the churches in the first century. The first disciples of Jesus Christ were culturally and ethnically Jewish. Jesus Christ was born inside of Israel. Jesus Christ was the son of one of the tribes. God was very in love with the nation of Israel. It was his chosen people, his special people. For centuries before Jesus Christ came, there was silence from God. Jesus Christ comes on the scene as the Messiah, and for the most part, we know the story of the Gospels. The Hebrew people rejected him. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to take them outside of captivity, outside of Roman control. They were looking for a political, military figure. They weren't looking for a baby born in a manger that was born to die for our sins. Jesus Christ lives a perfect life for 33 and a half years, tempted in every point that we were, but yet without sin, that he gave himself up to be tortured, beaten, and die for our sins. Even when he's on the cross, most of his disciples had left him at that point. He cries on the cross, it is finished. He also cries on the cross before that, my God, my God, why, has you, why have you forsaken me? He takes the price and the penalty for our sin. He, he literally, the Bible says, becomes sin for us. He dies. He gives up the ghost. He's taken off the cross. He's buried in a new borrowed tomb. He's wrapped. Three days later, he rises again from the grave with his own power. He starts to be seen by his disciples who don't know him at, at, at this time. And we, and we find out that a lot of the disciples, while they were alive, uh, while he was alive with them, they really didn't know Jesus as, as, as their personal Lord and Savior. They didn't have that, that salvation type of experience. It was after he rose again that a lot of them finally, it all clicked and it all came together. And so from then on, we see on the day of Pentecost, we see the, the apostles get up and they preach and, and they preach in different tongues and the Holy Spirit comes down on them and everybody hears in their own language and thousands of people come to Jesus. They're in Jerusalem for festivals and so there's way more people in Israel than normal. They all go back to their hometowns. They're changed and we see this explosion of people coming to Jesus and local churches getting started. We know the story of the, of the apostles beginning to preach. We know the story of them, some of them being, being tortured, some of, them, some of them being martyred. We know the story of this young Pharisee by the name of Saul, who is such a smart Pharisee, under, sitting at the, at the school of Gamaliel. He's, he's a rock star when it comes to being a Pharisee. He's so zealous about Christianity being the wrong thing and that this Messiah wasn't real. He was consenting to these people who, who knew Jesus as their Messiah. He wanted them to be tortured and arrested and died for believing something different than Judaism. He was so zealous 
And he was such a rock star that, that the priests and government officials sent him to Damascus to put some more Christians away. And if you know the story, on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself stops him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's really hard to kick against the pricks. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. Notice Paul doesn't go, hey, Lord, I'm seeking after you. No, Paul, Saul ain't even going after Jesus, but Jesus goes after Saul. And he tells him what? He goes, from now on, here's your new job. You are going to make people who are blind see. You are going to make people who are in darkness, you're going to give them light. You will be a light to the Gentiles. So this Pharisee, this Hebrew of Hebrews, that's how Paul describes himself in the book of Philippians, his ministry is going to be primarily to people who are outside of his culture and outside of his ethnicity and outside of his comfort zone. And we know the ministry of the Apostle Paul you know, it's funny because I, I've heard some pastors say, like, you know, the Apostle Paul's ministry was balling. No, it wasn't. This cat got beat up all the time. Got arrested all the time. There was one time he got beat up so bad, he's like, yo, I saw heaven. And the only reason why I'm back down is because God wanted me to be here. I literally want to be up there. And God's like, nah, I'm not done yet. And he comes back. And all throughout his entire ministry, Paul is seeing churches planted. He had partners that went with him and saw all of these, these, these people come to Jesus. And the people that were coming to Jesus, he always started to speak in places where there was a, a, a huge crowd of people who were like him. So he went to the tabernacle, he went to the temple, he went to people who were like him, and he, and he started to expound what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. And he would bring it full circle to Jesus, and a lot of them rejected and then he started reaching Gentiles. And, you know, a Gentile is just someone who's not Jewish, right? Thank God, you know, God saves Gentiles, amen? Because that's like most of us in this room. And so he sees all these people come to Jesus. But also we do see people from the nation of Israel who are ethnically and culturally Jewish come to Jesus. And so all of these first century churches that were either started by Paul or started because of the ministry of the gospel going all over the place. Remember, the Bible says in the book of Acts that Christians turned the world upside down. Now you have all of these churches. And all these churches have people who were historically Jewish, who now accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and Gentiles who know nothing but Jesus. They left their pagan rituals, they left their pagan religions, they're only following Jesus, and now they live together as one local church. And the story is just they live happily ever after. It's beautiful. It's cute, right? No. It was dirty. It wasn't easy. And those of y'all that go to a local church now, you know it ain't easy. Every day, every day I pray for churches like Cornerstone because in their name is the very fact that Jesus is the cornerstone. But as soon as y'all take Jesus outside of him being the cornerstone, y'all are, are doomed. Jesus has to remain who we are. And so when we talk about our identity in Christ, remember, our identity in Jesus is not just this personal thing. Our identity in Jesus is what causes us to remain together. 
And so you have this church where you have people who have of, of Jewish descent and you have people who are still culturally Jewish and still pretty active in their Jewish community and you have these Gentiles coming to church together and if you read anything about the Old Testament, if you know anything about Judaism, there are a bunch of rules and regulations that you follow. And a lot of it was, you know, comes back from the Old Testament you know, and, and the reason why they had these laws were for really good reasons, for things like, like sanitation, things like keeping, you know, keeping clean and, and, and making sure they didn't get sick while they were doing all their, their, their wanderings in the desert. A lot of it was just practical, but a lot of it was just kind of a pictorial allegory about what Jesus Christ was going to be later. So don't touch things that are unclean because the idea that being unclean means that we have what in our life? Sin, Right? And so that translated into things that they could eat, things that they couldn't eat, things that they could do, things that they shouldn't do. On the Sabbath day, you weren't supposed to travel. You were supposed to do what? Get with everybody else and celebrate who God is, right? That's, that, that's a Sabbath. The Sabbath concept is awesome. But then you had these Pharisees. You had people who would literally, like, like, this is how they would do it. You can't walk 100 paces on the Sabbath day. So what they would do is they would take some dirt from home, right? And they would put it in this little sack, and they would go, one, two, three, yada, 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 98, 99, poop, a little land from home, one, two, three. And that's how they would do it, some shady people, man. And so you had this, this Judaic system, and you had this local church with these Gentiles that didn't know anything about, about, about Jewish culture or anything. So imagine, imagine the first potluck dinner at one of these churches, right? You got the Jewish people bringing all these clean things, having all these rituals. They, they, they can't touch things. They can't sit with people. They can't do all this stuff. And then you got like this Gentile coming in with like some bacon. He's like, yeah, let's go. And they're like, Right? And all of a sudden, it wasn't just like, you know, not just because unclean, it's because, and some of it, you get it. If you've never had bacon before, I mean, don't talk to me if you've never had bacon before. But I mean, like, if, if, you, like, if you've never really, like, like, smelled something, like, you ever been around people with other different cultures and they got different smells and you're like, ugh, right? Imagine all of a sudden you've been told your whole life, that smell was not only bad, that smell was not different, that smell was sinful. That's what was happening at this church. And so you had like these Jewish people that would only hang out with themselves. And you had these Gentile people that were just trying to like, yo, I, I love Jesus. I thought you love Jesus. How come we're not getting together? And it was rough. And so now we're told what? That we're all new creatures in Christ. That everything, that God, God predestined us not only to be a child of God, that God predestined us to live together in community. And there's this divide there's this rift that obviously is always going to happen. What do we do with that? What do we do when people are a part of our church community that we don't like? Because remember, we read last night, man, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, it shows there's something seriously wrong with you and your Savior. How do we maintain Unity, And I think that word maintenance is important because it's not a one and done type of thing, right? My, my, uh, my wife and I were staying at a friend's house when we were uh, in Phoenixville and uh, our friend's daughter, um, I'm not going to say her name because she'll kill me. Um, and she's a photographer, which means she has access to social media so she could put like ugly pictures of me up. So just, she's going to hear it anyway. But um, like she, she she's, a, she's a millennial and like, you know, I know some of you are millennials, but y'all know who you are and y'all know who you like, right? Like, you know, uh, she got a car 
And uh, she was sitting with her parents in the back of their car talking about the car that she had and how, you know, uh, for three months the oil light came on and then it just went off. And she was like, yeah, it's like windshield wiper fluid. You know, you change it when you want, right? And her dad's like, what? And she's like, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. She goes, I don't have time to change and all that stuff. It's just too much. It's fine. And then they started telling her, like, how important it was. She's like, no, it's not important. Maintenance is not that important. And I'll get to it when I can. And then she starts Googling what happens when you don't change your oil. And then she realized for the first time, she even puts it this way. Wow, maintenance is important. And I'm here to tell you, it's not, it's not just the unity that we're supposed to have in, within Jesus. It's maintaining it that causes us to have a few things happen. That unity causes us to continue in fellowship with Christ and with one another, but it also gives us the opportunity to experience something that's beautiful, and that's reconciliation. The first big reconciliation that you and I need to have is reconciliation with Jesus, right? And that happens when we come to him for salvation. And some of us, we're still at this place in our life that we may be culturally Christian. But when it comes to what it means to be biblically born again, we're not there yet. And we know all the words to say, we know all the songs to sing, but when it comes to truly, when, when, when brass tacks hits and rubber meets the road, we still haven't met with Jesus yet. So that's the first reconciliation that you need to experience. And then throughout your Christianity, throughout your, your, your born-again life here on earth, there'll be times that you'll have rifts with brothers and sisters, and you need to be reconciled to them. And you need to have those, those moments where, where you're able to get back in fellowship with people. And God allows this to happen over and over with brothers and sisters in Christ when there's unity. So Paul says in verse 11, so then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. So this church had friction, and there was friction between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. And so Paul goes to explain the, and the, this discussion of the relationship between the, the two groups of people. So in verse 11, Paul starts talking to the Gentiles that how they had this hopeless condition before salvation, and then he's going to contrast that with what the Jews had, okay? So the, the Gentiles were hopeless without Jesus. You and I are hopeless without Jesus, right? There is no true hope without a true relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Okay, so then he talks about how the, that God had this plan of salvation in the Old Testament about how the Messiah was going to come. And he dispensed information about this Messiah that was coming throughout the Old Testament. And who was given, the Bible calls these oracles of God about this Savior who was coming. Who was given this? The nation of Israel. So you have Gentiles who were hopeless because they had no knowledge of who Jesus was. And you had a nation who had every facet of what this Messiah was going to be, step by step, precept by precept, building more and more as time went on about who this Messiah was going to be. And even though you had one side who had really no knowledge of Jesus and one side who had a lot of knowledge about who this Messiah was going to be, they both were lost. With knowledge or without knowledge, unless you have Christ, you are lost. 
It only meant, just because the message of the Messiah came through the Jewish nation, it only meant that he used them to bring it to pass. And these Ephesians, these Gentiles, even though they didn't have natural access to to this salvation plan, Paul says that the condition of the Jews being lost with knowledge and the conditions of the Gentiles not being with knowledge is the same condition, lost. And so he shows them how significant the salvation that we spoke about in, the, in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is because the only thing that reconciled us to God wasn't our knowledge and it wasn't that we had no knowledge, it was Jesus. He saved us. He reconciled us. He, even, even in a nation that rejected him, he still used them to bring Jesus, to keep the word of God preserved so that people who had no word would have it. God's word never comes back void. God's work is never unaccomplished. He will use people who don't follow him to still get his purposes across. So even though the Jewish nation rejected him, he still used them to keep the word of God preserved. So he brings up in, in, verse, uh, in verse 11, circumcision, and, and the, way, the way he puts it, He says, so then remember that at one time you were the Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. It's always funny to me that this is like the the way you describe whether you're in or not, circumcision. Like, how'd you know? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how did that, why was that the thing? I don't, I don't get it. But this is what they were. So they would always be called uncircumcised. And it was this visible thing that God would do. On the eighth day, the, the male would be circumcised. The entire, the entire tribes went through it. Paul even uses it as, as a source of saying, hey, if anybody wants to have uh, confidence in their resume, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am like a, a Jew of Jews. Right? It was this visible sign of a historical relationship with God. But, like, think about this. The thing that was supposed to tie them to a personal relationship with God visibly became the source of elitism and pride for them. That they thought because they had this, it was, it was their right to be better than other people. It became a religious slur. That you were either circumcised and the Jews, the Gentiles, they called them uncircumcised. They don't know God. They're not what? As good as us. And so the Jewish nation, they forfeited this special position with God because even though, even though physically they went through the trauma of being circumcised, their heart attitude had nothing to do with submission to God. They visibly looked like People who knew God, but they knew nothing about him. They were as lost as people who never knew anything about the Messiah. They were in the same boat. They were not submissive to God. So in verse 12, he goes on to say that we were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of, uh, of Israel. Okay, so we're, we're outside of the family. Gentiles were never in the family. We're, we're, we're foreigners in covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
It is such a bleak history that we have without Jesus. The the Jews had this rich history of, of God working, of God moving, and still were lost. But the Gentiles had nothing to, to cling to. They had nothing to say, hey, we were we are one of them because of that. They had none of that. It was bleak. And so what were they? So Paul emphasizes that Gentiles were what? Number one, that they're separated from Christ. Right? Before Jesus, you and I were separated from Christ. The second thing is that we're excluded from the citizenship of Israel. We had nothing to do historically with God's promise. We're foreigners. We don't even know what the promise is. And so because of that, we are what? Without hope and without God in the world. And we talked about this yesterday. Sometimes the only thing we have is hope. And so you take hope away and that's it. And imagine the the nation of Israel having God not only on their side but his presence. Being his special people. And he said the Gentiles don't even have that. And so Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. He was given to the nation of Israel. He's been given promises, covenants by God that there would be this Messiah that would come. This gave them hope. This afforded them an avenue uh, to to God. Gentiles didn't have this advantage of knowing that there was a way to God. A Gentile might convert to Judaism, but then what happens is, is that they would no longer be a Gentile. They would now be what? A converted Jew. So anybody who stayed as a Gentile knew nothing. And so true Gentiles, people who didn't even find out about about Judaism, had many religions and many gods. And the one God that, that, that they didn't know, they didn't acknowledge. So think about this. Completely outside of God's family. Completely outside of the knowledge of God. And you have the nation of Israel who had all this stuff going for them. And then verse 13 says... But now Christ, in Christ Jesus, who you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The only thing that brings us into proper relationship with God the Father is a personal relationship with God the Son through his blood. Simply knowing about Jesus doesn't cut it. Going to church because grandma and grandpa used to go there doesn't cut it. Knowing verses in the Bible and being able to quote them doesn't cut it. Knowing, knowing that, that pastors, you know, are, are, are faulty men and that, you know, you followed a pastor one time and he led you astray or, or, or hurt you and, then, and so you don't follow Christianity, like you worship God wherever you want, that don't cut it. The only thing that takes us to heaven and forgives us of our sins is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and by his blood. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He shed his blood. The Bible is clear without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. The Bible says that Jesus Christ's blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The only thing that truly saves us is receiving the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The ones that the Jews were waiting for are the ones that Gentiles can call on. 
So because of God's mercy, because of God's love, he did not leave us in this hopeless condition. So Christ abolishes. This is what he does. Because of the blood, this is what the blood of Jesus actually does. It abolishes abolishes the line between those with all this cultural and ethnic and biblical knowledge of being a Jew. It abolishes that, that line between them and those who know nothing. They are no better than they are. It's not about where we come from. It's about who we know. And if we don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter if you were born in church or born in the gutter. It don't matter. The only thing that gets you to heaven is a relationship with Jesus. Not because we're anything special. Not because we have some sort of special knowledge. It's because God simply loves you and had mercy on you. All People are considered the same before God. The only thing that abolished this this wall between those with all of this knowledge and those with no knowledge is that Jesus Christ died for all. Christ abolishes this line. And so because of this, because of God loving us, because of God having mercy, because of God sending his son, verse 14 says, for he is our what? Peace, who made both groups one and did what? Tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. So so what did he do? What, What did God do for us? He made peace for us and him. Notice, God didn't wait for you to come to him. God didn't wait for you to clean up your act. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is not waiting for you to get better. God is not waiting for you to to, to get, you know, reformed. God just wants to save you. You can't save yourself because you've tried, and what happened? So God wants peace. God wants peace to be two things. He wants it to be vertical. He wants us to have peace with him. But also what? God wants the peace that we have with him to be translated also into peace with other people. Right? So he wants, here's what he wants. And for that first century church, he wanted Jews and Gentiles to be at peace with one another. And he wants both of them to be reconciled to one another and to be at peace. And so how do people who don't get along, how do people who come from different backgrounds, how do people who are at such odds finally be reconciled to one another when they're first reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? You won't have restored relationships if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no hope for reconciliation if you don't have a relationship with Christ. The Bible says, for he himself is our peace. So this animosity, this hatred toward each other, the Jews and Gentiles, it created this wall of separation. So Christ abolishes that wall by saying, hey, you're not a Jew. You're not a Gentile. You're in me. Right? Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, everything is new. And it doesn't mean that we stop having a cultural identity. 
but it means that we're not defined by that culture. We're defined by Jesus. We don't establish for ourselves what our identity is. Our identity is in Jesus. And if we remember, like we talked about last night, if we, if we get off that, we're going to be off course. And all the fights and all the, the struggles that we have in 2022 because of politics, because of religion, inside and outside of churches, is because we forgot that our identity is in Jesus. Our identity is not going to be in Fox News or MSNBC. Our identity is not going to be on what position you stand on Roe versus Wade. Our position is in Jesus Christ. Because then he'll tell you what positions are and everything else. Your favorite preacher isn't going to be where your identity is in. Church, your, your church is not your identity. Your identity is in Jesus. Verse 15 says, the Jews kept the law. Verse 15, that he made no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. So remember, back, what happened? The, the Jews kept the law with all the commandments and all the regulations. Gentiles didn't know about any of those regulations, so they weren't keeping them. And so this created what? A barrier. Jews were doing all these things. The Gentiles were doing nothing. So the reason when Jesus Christ died, he satisfies all of the things that the Jews were doing. And so he takes out this barrier between those who didn't even know about those things. So now Jews don't obey the law to come to Jesus. The Gentiles never obeyed the law, so they, they don't need that to come to Jesus. And so now this, this distinguishing feature between the two is gone, and now there's peace. Once we get all of our distinguishing features that we like to use as tokens and, and trophies about who we are, once those things go, to way, go away, now we can start talking about peace. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3, I considered everything but dung to simply know Jesus Christ. Literally, it was garbage. It was refuse just to know who Jesus is. All the good stuff I did, all the bad stuff I did meant nothing to simply knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what this church is experiencing. So God did more. If you look at verse, six, uh, verse 16, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. So what is that, what is that verse talking about there? It was God's, God's purpose to, to do more than just unite two parties that were fighting, okay? It's nice, right? You know, like if you, got, if you got two siblings or two parts of the family that are always fighting, it's nice if you can have a Thanksgiving where everybody gets together and just gets along, right? Isn't that true? Sometimes when our families, all we want is our families not to fight, right? We're not even looking for reconciliation. We're just looking for no war, right? I just want to get some turkey. I just want to get some gravy and go home. That's it, right? I want, I want it peace. God does more than that. And that's what I, want, what I want to share with you is we need to desire more than just not fighting. Right? You need to, do, to want more than just God not being mad at you. You need to get to the place where you recognize your identity is so just wrapped in your Savior that you know that he loves you. And you know that he is for you. So it's more than just having the wall down 
It's you establishing a new foundation in Jesus. And so this purpose is more than uniting two parties. He, he, he creates a new one that will learn together how to have a relationship with God. So here's what the cross did. The cross took away the difference between the Jew and the Gentile, right? And he brought them together as one. He brought us all together as one so that we in Christ Jesus can know more about him. So can I put it this way? You grow in your faith when you grow in community. You're not supposed to do this on your own. If you say it's just me and God versus the world, baloney. It's supposed to be you and God and the other brothers and sisters in Christ who are also going on this journey. Recovery doesn't happen in solitude. Right? Sobriety and cleanness doesn't stay because of solitude. You need accountability. You need brothers and sisters. And so God eradicates the walls to put us together so that we all can learn about God together. So the cross destroys this division. And so here's what true reconciliation looks like. Here's what true, true fellowship looks like. It looks like you and I walking down the road together in love with our Savior and in love with his word. That you have a group, a band of brothers that walk together. A group of sisters that, that share life together. That we have churches that learn about Jesus together and come together for worship and, and for, for, for mutual fellowship. That they're not looking to get something out of church. That they want everything to come from Jesus. That's what reconciliation looks like. So Paul, in verse 17, he quotes Isaiah 57, verse 19. And here's what he says in, ver in verse 17. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So Paul's showing that the word of God expected that the Messiah was going to come. The Old Testament said the Messiah's job was to be to reconcile both Jew and Gentile. Those who were far away, he's talking about the Gentiles. Those who were near, he's talking about the Jews. That those who had all of the experience, all of the history, that they were near, those who were far, and now they're both together. Right? Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what does it mean that we have access? Okay, what does it mean that, that, that we come together? So Jesus preaches a message of peace, of reconciliation through the gospel of both Jews and Gentiles. And, and because of the cross, he brings them together, right? What's the one mediator between God and man? The man Christ Jesus, right? And so who's the mediator of, between all the nations? It'll be Christ Jesus. It's through, it's through the gospel that we come together. It's not just, you know, a good politics and being a good neighbor. You have to know Jesus for this to happen. And the Bible says that, that God sends the Spirit of God to all that believe. And so what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit opens the door for what? Everybody who's now been taken outside of the, the, the Jewish uh, culture and outside of the Gentile culture, and now they are all been put into the Spirit of God. And what does that mean? We now all have immediate presence of God. 
The Spirit of God isn't something that just comes upon someone like the Old Testament. When you, as a New Testament believer, come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you the moment of salvation. That you go from having no God to having God indwelled inside of you. The Holy Spirit, God, the, the third person of the Trinity lives inside of you. And that power is given to everyone that believes. And so we see this is how the Trinity works in salvation. The Father developed a plan of salvation through grace. The Son carries out this plan to bring Jews and Gentiles together. And how, does it, how do we get access to God to keep it all together? The Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is alive and working in your life. So verse 19, man, all, all Jews are, are and Gentiles are no longer estranged from each other. They're now considered what? Fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. So no race, no nationality, no socioeconomic status has anything to do with this. Everybody who's been rescued and redeemed through Jesus Christ are now in God's presence and in his family. We're now called God's people. The Bible uses the, the, the phrase in Greek, hagion, meaning the holy ones. That God's people were literally considered the set apart ones. And in the Old Testament, this described what the, what, who Israel was. But now Jewish Christians, now first generation Gentile Christians, and now all have the same title. They are no longer alienated foreigners with no citizenship papers. They are all inside the family of God. That we're all together. That we live this life together. That we do these things together. Let's look at verse 20. Another so then. Okay, so because of all that, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So he switches now, okay? And now he switches to a metaphor of, of a building. We're no longer foreigners. We're no longer outside of the nation. We're all in God's family. We're all citizens of heaven. This is why you and I need to have reconciliation and unity with one another. Our unity is in God, so that means our unity is now in one another. We're all part of God's family. We're all on the same team, right? With all that being true, now he switches it to what, what does it mean to be part of a building? And he says Jews and Gentiles are all stones in a building, and the building rests on a solid foundation. What is, what is the foundation? He says who? Of the apostles and the prophets. So I want you to think about what does our building rest on as a foundation? The faith, the testimony, and the life of Christ's closest followers, the apostles. I want you to think about what God did in the lives of all of those men. Some were simple fishermen. One was a tax collector. One was a zealot. These guys had no preaching experience. These guys were all going their own way until Jesus called them. And Jesus changed their life. Their life was never the same. They, after Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came down, what happened? They start preaching the gospel around the world. They remain faithful to the point of death. These men and what they experienced and what they believed 
and the message of the prophets in the Old Testament and what they preached. This is the solid foundation that we're on. So for those who came from Jewish descent, they had the Old Testament prophets. For those who were Gentiles, they had the message that they heard really recently. And they all come together. See, but a building isn't anything unless there's a cornerstone. The cornerstone holds everything together. The term is actually taken from Isaiah 28, verse 16, and it's probably interpret, interpreted in light of what it says in Psalm 118. So what the question is, which building stone is meant? The cornerstones to which all foundations are connected or, or the capstone or the keystone, the last one that comes together. So the, so the Ephesian church could have interpret it any other way but here's the thing either if Jesus is on top or the most important thing in there he's still Jesus and we're not right he's the most important stone of that building so whether we want to accept what the prophets preached or whether we think that that it's legit enough to think about all the what the apostles went through when it comes down to it it's what they relied on is what that we we rely on Christ and what he's done for us. So verse 21 says this, these stones are living. And him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So, so these stones aren't dead. These stones grow. And, and what do they build? They build this living spiritual temple to glorify the Lord. So in the Old Testament, remember, the, the, the presence of God filled and inhabited a literal stone building. So now the Bible says that God doesn't live in a stone building. Where does he live? In our hearts. Right? The Holy Spirit is inside of us. And so Christ is this unifying factor that puts these stones together and doesn't just create a building. What do these stones create? A temple. A set-apart building. And this temple, God receives worship and praise. And the hearts of the believers are the basic worship place of God's kingdom on earth. So where does the most powerful worship take place? From us. It doesn't take the most skilled band. It doesn't take smoke and lights. It doesn't take an auditorium. It doesn't take an event on Eventbrite. Where does it come from? Us. Our worship Remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us. Remembering where we came from and remembering who we are now and who we are together. That's the worship that builds this temple. So Paul concludes the, the chapter by saying in verse 22, in him. Remember, he's used that phrase a lot, right? In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So he wants to remind us, he wants us to remember something at the end of this chapter, especially to the Gentile Ephesians. There's no room for self-pity. God included them. We're included in, we're in God's family. In Christ, they're being built into the temple along with Jewish Christians. So, so what happens is that God creates this huge worship center from us. I want you to dwell on that and think about that when we talk about unity. That where we came from, we all came from a place of being lost. Regardless of whether you grew up in church or not, regardless of whether you had organized religion or not, regardless of how much scripture you think you know, how close you think you are to God, without Jesus Christ, you're lost. 
And when you come to Jesus Christ, you come just like everybody else comes. You come at the foot of the cross. And when you and I receive Jesus Christ, we're invited into a family that all of us are now in. And when we're in this family, what is our purpose? To recognize where we came from. To realize what God has made us. To realize what God has torn down to put us together in order for us to do what? To be a factory and a temple of worship. That's what keeps us unified. Reconciliation happens when you and I are unified with Christ and unified to one another. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Christians are praying. People are doing business with God. I want to ask you, what part do you have in unity? What part in unity do you have in your church? What part do you have in unity of your family, colony, barber's place? What, what, what are we doing to broadcast and proclaim unity in Christ? Maybe the first question is this. Do you have unity in Christ yourself? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Could, could, if I was to ask you this way, would you say you and Christ are on, this, on the same page, his page? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you received forgiveness of sins? Is, is that something that, that's done? If you say, hey, me and Christ are unified, is the answer because you go to church or because you receive Jesus? So if you're here... And you say, Rob, I, I don't think I've received Jesus. I think my unity is, is really shallow or I'm not sure about it. I'm concerned, Rob. Can you please pray for me? Would you raise your hand? I would just love to pray for you. No one's going to embarrass you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, the Bible says the only way for, for us to have forgiveness of sins is in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, for there is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Everyone has gone his own way. And the Bible says that, that because we don't have a relationship with God, the Bible says that you and I have come short of the glory of God. That every single one of us has character defects. We have flaws. We have things that we've said, things that we've done, things that we've thought that were against God. And the Bible says the wages of these sins, the wages of these character defects, is that you and I are going to die. We're spiritually dead as it is, the Bible says, without Christ. And the Bible says that one day that, that spiritual death also includes a physical death and that we're going to be separated from God for all of eternity. For the wages of sin is death. And death and hell were cast into what the Bible describes as a literal lake of fire. Hell is what our destiny is without Jesus. And you may say, hey, my life is hell here on earth. It's nothing compared to what you experience in hell. The verse goes on to say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here and you say, Rob, I don't know for sure that I have unity with Christ. I don't know if I have 
a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I've never called on Jesus to save me. I like to worship. I like to go to church. But I don't think I have Jesus as my Savior. If you say, Rob, I, I really need to establish a relationship with God. And based on those verses, I, I think that my destination is not heaven. It's hell. And I, I really want to call on Jesus. Would you raise your hand again if that's you? And you say, I'm just not sure. Yes? Here's what I want you to do. Okay? I'm going to pray and I'm going to introduce you to Jesus. I'm not going to pray for you. I'm not going to tell you what to say. But here's what, here's what you got to talk to God about. You got to tell him that you recognize that you've sinned against him. You got to tell him that you've, you recognize that without him that you don't go to heaven. And I want you to ask Jesus to save you. I want you, I want you to ask Jesus to be your savior and to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. The Bible says if you call on Jesus, he will save you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. I'm going to introduce you to Jesus. And I want you to talk to God about what he's talked to you about. And if you receive Jesus tonight, I want you to look at me when you're done. Okay, so we're all going to keep our eyes bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to pray. Father, I have some dear friends here who have raised their hand acknowledging that they need to trust you as their savior. So God, I'm just introducing you to my friends. You know who they are already. I just want to be polite, Lord. So they're going to talk to you now, and they're going to ask you. If they're willing and you're moving, they're going to ask you. So I, I pray that, that you listen to their prayer and that you would save them and bring them into our family. So take some time. Talk to God about what he's talked to you about. Acknowledge who he is. Acknowledge who you are. Receive forgiveness from him. Receive Jesus as your Savior. And when you're done, just, just, just quietly say amen. And you can look at me and then we'll know we're done. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Remember, it's not the words you say. It don't got to be perfect. Just talk to God, man. Just talk to him. It's all right. Amen. The Bible says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. The Bible says the angels rejoice just when one person comes to him. God, thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for continuing to call people to yourself. Thank you for saving us. In the name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said, God bless you. Have a good night.